This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue, opening the minds to the public, to what takes place in reality, as opposed to what you think takes place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast. Here's your host, Dominic Crea. Hello, listeners. Hope everybody's doing well. Um... I'm doing pretty well. Yesterday, the uh, the other day, actually, uh, Saturday, the Bills looked great. So I'm a, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, and uh, I was happy about that win. I'll tell you that much. Um, today, I wanted to uh, talk about a couple of things. I wanted to talk about, um, I guess, like four or five different topics. So I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on each one. Um, some some go into each other. Some do not. So I'll uh, I'll go through each one, say what I want to say about it, and we'll go from there. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about has to do with a lot of times people will say um, the uh, point of contention. They'll try to say, well, this informant didn't lie and this one did lie. Well, I don't really buy into that. I, I've seen enough cases. I've seen enough examples that every informant I've come across have lied in one way or another. And to, to grasp that, I don't, I don't only, I, I try to separate myself, whereas I may personally not agree with informants, but I try to analyze the case to, so when I am citing things and if I want to point out examples of when they were dishonest, I'm able to do it in an intelligent way rather than just make a blanket rule. I like to point and, and cite my sources and cite my reasoning. Now, with that said, that's not to convince anybody or to tell anybody to conclude this way I concluded. Uh, it's simply just to lay everything out there and then have them decide after they hear all the material, they hear all the evidence, they hear all the facts, then they could decide um, where they fall as to who's lying, who's who's not being uh, truthful, who's being honest when they're in front of the jury, who's not, who's trying to make themselves better than they are, things like that. So how do you really do that? A lot of people will say, oh, I read the uh, trial transcript, so I know the case. Well, that's only part of it. When you're looking to analyze a case, you have to really dive into a lot of different things, and sometimes it could get costly uh, because you have to order a lot of this information. For example, when I'm, when I'm trying to understand a case, the first thing I'll do is go to PACER. PACER is a... It's a public access to court electronic records on the federal level. So you could pull up any records from all the different um, districts. You could do Southern District, Eastern District. Uh, those are in New York. Wherever your district may lie, you could uh, open up a PACER account. It's free to open the account. Uh, however, you do have to pay per item you use. Some of the items are, are not that expensive. They charge a few cents per page, and there are only a few pages. Some items can be... Uh, can add up because there's uh, a lot of information. There may be some dockets that were submitted and filings that were submitted 
which house a lot of pages and therefore increase the cost since they charge per page so you want to open up a pacer account uh the the address is pacer.uscourts.gov and you could open up a pacer pacer account for free anyone could do it and if you're focusing on a certain case you could get the case number or the defendant's name you could plug that in and find what you're looking for now why that's important is pacer will allow you to view all of the motions unless they're sometimes motions are submitted um in a way uh, i'm trying to think what it's called uh give me one second sealed i couldn't think of the word from uh, i don't know i'm getting old uh sealed when they sometimes they'll seal a filing and you're not able to see it if it's sealed and that could have different reasonings behind it it could be there's some uh, personal information in the filing such as health I've seen that a few times where if somebody has some health issues they don't really want that public what they're dealing with so they'll ask their attorney to put it under seal this way the public can't see that information but other than that on PACER you're able to pull up all of the motions now the motions are very important for learning about a case because the motions are, are what happens prior to trial so you have all these motions going in prior to trial from both the defense and from the prosecution and a lot of the times these motions will cite discovery or evidence of the case and what the judge is allowing the defense to talk about a trial introduce a trial and what they don't allow them to so it's important to understand those items because you'll get a bigger picture than what the jury had uh, the jury you're gonna be able to see what the defense may have what the defense is citing to help their case that perhaps wasn't available at trial because the judge didn't allow them to introduce it so the motions are very vital to understand a case a lot of times you'll see inconsistencies within the motion the defense will point out inconsistencies that the informant had uh, given a proffer session for a proffer session is when they talk to the government and the government writes down everything they're being told uh, so a lot of times the defense will sit, submit motions to show that inconsistency and the contradictions now at trial the jury's not aware of those contradictions because for whatever reason they never were allowed the defense was not allowed to, to discuss those items however if you're following the case and you're trying to learn about it you want to understand all of the motions that were submitted this will give you a better picture and also lay out how the case developed each stage of the case perhaps defendants took pleas and are no longer part of it uh, perhaps there's information within the motions that reflect on guilt or innocence so you get a good understanding you could understand the um, levels of contradictions that may have taken place either by the government where a lot of times they'll make disclosures at bail hearings that are not accurate once they're compared to the discovery they'll try to claim they possess certain evidence that they may not that comes out later and then the defense will put in a motion to say hey the prosecution's made claims a b and c during this defendant's trial uh, bail hearing and yet we're showing x y and z as the evidence and then the judge will rule on that so you really want to file the case you want to pull as much as you can the other tactic I use is I reach out to the defense team that was involved in the case I want to hear from the family possibly the defendant I want to take notes on what their input is 
things that they're aware of that may have taken place, lies that maybe they had to sit there and listen to from informants, any misconduct that may have taken place from the prosecution. So I tried to listen to the pro to the defense side because there's not many that really put the defense side out there. If you notice, it's always the we always hear what the prosecution, what the state, what the government wants you to hear when they're trying a case. They have their connections with the media, so they'll put out there what they want out in the news. You'll only hear their narrative, their perspective, and now with the informants doing their podcast, you're only hearing their side. You're only hearing them claim that they, they were truthful and they're honest and they don't lie. It's only one side of the story. So you have to hear another side, irregardless of who you agree with. You just want to hear both sides so at least you have a better understanding of the complete picture and you could speak about it more intelligently than just making claims like, oh, I know this guy didn't tell the truth. Okay, well, how, or did tell the truth, I should say. Okay, well, how do you know that? Uh, when they say, oh, this informant doesn't lie. Okay, how do you know that? Did you do the due diligence? Did you prepare for that? Did you pull every motion? Did you talk to the defense? Nine out of ten times, they didn't do a quarter of those things. So I dismiss those claims right away where people are vouching for others that they're truth tellers because I, I want to understand the whole picture before I draw that conclusion. And a lot of people get insulted when you don't uh, agree with that when you just don't take their word for it, you want to see proof. And that's the way these type of things, these are serious matters, and you can't just draw conclusions and make assumptions based on the input or the opinion of somebody else. You gotta really understand it, understand the project, understand the case, understand the facts. And I don't see that happening uh, as often as it should. So this is one piece of the puzzle where you go on the pacer, then a lot of people don't know this, they think you could also get transcripts on PACER. You can't get transcripts, that's a separate process. You have to go to the district where you want the transcript from. So for, for what I'm showing you now, this is the Southern District of New York, and they have a whole process for requesting a transcript from a court reporter. So you have to fill out this right here, this is the transcript request, which is this document here, this one, um, you fill out all the information, the date of the request. Now you'll notice, as I was telling you, where it could get expensive. You'll notice down on the bottom, the service, they have ordinary, which is 30 days, and it's $4 per page. You have the next day, $6 per page. You see all the different prices. Now, those prices do drop. Uh, if you're the first one to order a transcript, you pay the most, and then they have the copyright, copy, um, the, the copy pricing, which has to do with if somebody already ordered it, you get a cheaper rate because they already had to pull it and uh, print it. So you get a cheap, cheaper rate on that and it drops, so it costs a little less. But if you look here, th those prices could add up very quickly. I'll give you an example. The um, last trial I was part of was 5,000 pages. So if you have a, if you're the first one to order on an ordinary 30 days and you're paying $40, $4 per page times 5,000 pages, well, I don't got to tell you, that's, that's a lot of money. So, so a lot of times the defense will work with other lawyers to see who has a copy, if they can get a copy to try to keep those costs down. But I just wanted to show it's a separate process to order the transcripts. Not everything's on PACER. You can't really get trial transcripts on PACER. You have to go 
and order them directly from the court reporter and, and, and that's the process for that. So I just wanted to show that to, so the audience understands if they are interested and they want to learn about different cases, they kind of have a footprint of where to begin and a map of, of, of where to start and then they could go from there. Then it's a matter of really understanding the material, breaking things down, following from day one what transpired, what was allowed in, what was not allowed in. It, that's where the due diligence really begins. And that's where the homework begins, depending on how interested you are in the case. And different things for me personally will grab my interest. If I see an informant um, on YouTube making a lot of outlandish claims, and uh, sometimes I'll take interest in that, and I'll try to focus on that and, and disprove, if, if it can be disproven, disprove the claims they're making. So if they are lying, I like to be aware of that and let the public aware of that. It's all about juror education, from my, from my point of view anyway. I, I've been saying this for 80 episodes. People are like, oh, you should go with the courts and try to change the court system. Come on, let's, let's all be honest with each other. It, it, there's no way I'm changing the court system. That's a fact, and I accept that. It's not how things work. It's going to be very hard to change the, the court system. So my small part where I figured I can make somewhat of an impact and shift things a little bit is I appeal to the public because the public is the one who holds the power. I understand the judge holds the power in the courtroom I, I, and there's nobody more powerful within that courtroom. However, when de deliberations come, the buck stops at the jurors. They're the ones who have to decide on somebody's fate. So I want to appeal to the jurors simply to enhance their education enhance their awareness, make them understand certain things so perhaps when they do go to deliberate they remember some of those items and they keep those things in back of their head when they're trying to gauge whether or not somebody received a fair trial or whether or not the evidence supports the charges. I want them to remember certain things and they also need to understand that the informants in front of them have received massive benefits for their, in exchange for their testimony. So there's always an agenda there. They don't have to be held accountable. They need to be aware of all these different factors when they're deciding someone's fate and they're, and they're doing their job and their responsibility and part of the criminal justice system. They need to understand that their responsibility is very, very in-depth and very... Um, it's a grand scale. It's something very serious. It doesn't get much more serious than that, deciding the fate of somebody's life. So my um, focus is for the public, bringing public awareness. And again, people, I, I, I had a commenter the other day saying I try to convince people. That's, that's, that's always the argument of the week. They, they try to twist what I'm doing here and they want it to fall into their own narrative where they could just blow it off. So they'll use, they'll use different tactics. They'll say, oh, he's glorifying murderers um, or they'll say he's trying to convince people. None of that's true. Listen to my episodes. Whoever says that has not listened to one episode. I'm not here to convince anybody. I'm here to give my opinion, my position, give the reason why I have that opinion and that position, lay things out, I tell all of my listeners to listen to and understand as much as you can. Don't just listen to me. Listen to the informants podcast. Read the narrative that the government puts out on different cases. Look at the whole picture and then you decide.
if you decide you disagree still fine that's how it goes that's how these things work it's the same as in a courtroom right the judge the jury they have to listen to both sides they don't only get one side they get both sides of the argument and then they decide what the right um determination may be but only after they listen to both sides and a lot of people especially on social media on the internet I notice they don't like to listen to both sides they, they they just want they have their friends they have their alignments and they stick their fingers in their ears for anything else that opposes that or anything that contradicts that they they spiral and get very defensive and like oh what are you doing you know they take it personal and that just shows me that they're not open-minded they have an agenda so why even waste my breath let them think whatever they want and it all goes back to convincing I don't know for me others opinions aren't that important to me again not to sound arrogant but I don't I'm not here to convince anybody I really don't care what anybody concludes I believe what I want to believe I, I try to, to to make the most educational educated decisions I, I can when I'm evaluating something now I'm human and a lot of times my personal beliefs may influence certain things and I recognize that but at least I'm, I acknowledge it and I'm aware of it I don't pretend to say um, I don't I don't pretend to believe something I don't because it may be popular uh, like now I know liking informants seems to be popular people like informants they have no problem with somebody informing I I do not I don't care how popular it is I, I don't agree with that I, I just don't I don't agree with informing with informing as a principle it's just it's not part of my ideology uh, does that make me wrong or right no just makes my opinion different and what I find funny is I don't care what others think or what their opinion are. Everybody's free to do what they want, believe what they want. But what I do find ironic, people get very agitated if they can't convince me of certain things. That's what's funny. They claim I'm trying to convince people, but I don't care how people conclude. Yet if I want to disagree, they get very frustrated. So who's really trying to convince who? When you see somebody getting frustrated and, and annoyed if you disagree, that's somebody who's trying to convince you. Those who respect the disagreement and accept the philosophy of agreeing to disagree, they're not trying to convince anybody. And I come from that. I'm totally fine accepting agreeing to disagree. I, I'm, there's, no, there's nothing in me that has to force somebody to think like I do or behave like I do. So I just find that funny when uh, that's always the arguments. I had an informant saying I glorify people. And this is an informant who tries to act like he's Mr. Nice Guy. And then he goes abusing people. He's threatening people. He's always looking, I'm going to beat someone up, break their jaw. Always tough on the internet. And as I always say, it's, it's very easy to be tough as an informant and talk tough as an informant when you have the federal government protecting you. You could say whatever you want. You could abuse citizens, abuse people, say whatever you want, talk tough, threaten people, and it's okay. And I'll always go back to that point. If I come on here, or anybody, but if I come on here, and I start threatening informants and uh, telling them the things that they tell people, I'm going to have a serious problem. They're allowed to threaten people and, and run rampant. That's our taxpayers, uh, tax dollars hard at work. Right? They're, they're immune to those things. But everybody else can't say anything about informants, can't even imply any kind of threat or, or, or say something that could be twisted as a threat, and then they'll try to say you're threatening or you're intimidating. I find that very ironic, and, and people don't see it. I had um, 
one commenter was saying, oh, because I posted a, I'm going to start doing these series, True Color series, where I'll try to, to do a compilation of, of the behavior of a lot of these different informants. And I did one on uh, Jimmy Calandra, James Calandra. He's an informant, a federal informant. Um, he informed on a, uh, on a on a case years back. So I did a spotlight uh, because he's always claiming he's you know a godly guy. He's reborn, but his actions don't don't really back up his words. It's very easy to say one thing, but you're going to be judged on your actions, and a lot of people forget that. Uh, they think words mean something. To me, they don't mean that much. I go by actions. Too many times I've seen people say one thing and do another, so I go by actions. So I did the spotlight, uh, basically to look in the mirror, showing, and it's also showing the public, true colors. That's the best way to sum it up, the true colors of somebody. Right away, the insults. Now, I've never insulted informants verbally. I, I show facts. Uh, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. I did insult um, Frank Pasquale. I called him a few names, uh, and that was in response to his nasty remarks about my brother. And I guess, uh, I, I guess uh, my my personal feelings got the best of me on that. So I, I, I'm sure I'll keep doing that. But here's my point: with this informant, um, he decided to go on a page and, and call me a low life. Now. I got to be honest, being called a lowlife by an informant is somewhat of a compliment to me anyway, because this is a garbage pail who has no moral compass trying to insult me. So anything they say, I take it from the source. To me, that's like a compliment. It's like a garbage pail just talking garbage. So it doesn't really mean anything. I find it, I find it humorous. But what I will do is I'm going to capture every single outburst, every single comment, every single degenerate statement, and I'm going to house it. And I'm going to use it to help people. I'm going to use it for defense teams to show what these informants are all about, to show the jury their true colors, to really show how they act when they're, when they're done tes testifying and they're supposedly moving on with their quote-unquote new life. I want to remind the juries of what they're really going to do. I want the juror each juror to understand what they do and how they operate, things they say after they're done testifying and they got their nice suit on and they're all dottled up and they're trying to impress the jury and trying to speak eloquently and trying to be humble. I want to show them what they really are about. So, again, I'll keep saying it, keep talking. As far as I'm concerned, for all these informants, keep talking. Keep growing my database. You're only going to help down the road, so keep doing your thing. Um, I want to also talk about that I noticed, and I'm sure a lot of people notice this, if you ever, if you ever look, all these informants, from the books I've seen, whenever they write a book, they'll always use somebody else's picture, it's usually the defendant that they informed on, they'll use their picture to put it on the cover of the book, to try to get notoriety, they'll use other defendants' names, somebody may have a bigger name, so they'll put their name in the book, I mean, what does that tell you? And how's that even allowed, right? How, how could somebody use your likeliness and your name to make money with a book? I can't wrap my head around that one. There's all these loopholes. They say, oh, son of Sam law. But then when you try to enforce it, uh, there's all these loopholes. And it, it just, I don't know. They say they can't, but they always do. That's why I put little faith in that. I laugh when they say, oh, they can't do that. No, they're doing it. <laughs> they're doing it. They're allowed to do it.
and it happens time and again. Just look for yourself. Look at some of these informants' books. Uh, a recent informant book. I think he had two defendants on his cover and a little picture of him. Because it, nobody knows who they are. You got to realize nobody knows who these informants are, and that's the problem. They, they, they were nobodies. They claimed to be these big-time, crazy, Al Capone-type characters. They were all nobodies. So to get their name on the map, they have to use a big name to try to give themselves some credibility. And the public does buy it sometimes. They'll, they, you know, they'll buy into it because they, they don't know any better. Again, they're only seeing their one side. Do you really think those books are going to be fair and accurate and truthful? Come on. Those books are about boosting their ego, telling everybody how crazy they are, telling everybody how they're stand up. You know, that's what those books are. It's a PR. It's a PR move to try to put the informants in a good light. But again, it amazes me how there's, it's, it's okay that they could use other people, somebody else's name, somebody else's likelihood, somebody else's image, pictures, and their book and profit off of that. It's amazing how that could be done. Amazing how that could be done in today's day and age. Now, the other thing I wanted to uh, talk about was the, um, what I see happen a lot is people will not understand the process and they'll make claims when they're not really versed in how things work. I had somebody, when I did the hearsay episode, tried to tell me that there were more than 23 federal rules, federal exceptions to hearsay, to the hearsay rule. Now, what they were citing actually were additional exceptions. It wasn't part of the 23. Now, any, any law library you go to, if you go to Weinstein's uh, Evidence Manual, which is pretty much like the Bible of the federal rules of evidence, it all cites 23 exceptions to hearsay. Now, I, I don't know where they were trying to make their argument. I don't really know what the basis of it was. But anywhere you look, you don't got to take my word for it. Pull a law book. Pull, uh, go invest in the Epstein's... Um, Epstein's, I'm sorry, in the Weinstein's evidence, Federal uh, Manual of Evidence, invest in that, you'll see how it's 23 exceptions to hearsay, uh, on the Cornell Law site, 23 exceptions to hearsay, uh, they were trying to add different exceptions under that, but that's, um, it has a different heading, and it's a different format, it's additional exceptions, when they refer to the federal laws of hearsay exception, it's just 23, so I, I don't know what they were trying to trying to uh, cite there, but uh, all the citations I can show, prove, and revert to, you ask any judge, ask any lawyer, there's 23 rules to uh, the federal laws of hearsay, there's 23 exceptions. So, um, The reason why I want to mention that is I see a lot of misinformation where people are putting out there as fact when, in fact, uh, they're kind of wrong. For example, people were saying... Um, if you have an unfair judge, they think it's as easy as putting in a a request to, it's called a recusal motion, where you're asking the judge to recuse themselves from the case because of matters that may impact them from deciding fairly on that trial. And people think, well, well, the defense team, uh, they should have just put in a recusal mo motion. They were incompetent. Well, they don't know how it works when they say that because recusal motions are put in a lot. Uh, in the last case I was on, we put in a very in-depth recusal motion. Uh, in fact, I'm going to pull it up. The process, the way the recusal process works, you submit a request to the judge to recuse themselves from the trial. 
they have to review the information, decide whether they're going to recuse from the trial. And what's what's interesting, a lot of people don't realize, the sitting judge decides that for themselves. So it's not as if you're sending this request to another another um, department to see if that judge should recuse or to the higher ups or to another district or to a higher level court. It goes right to that sitting judge. So think how crazy that is. The judge decides if they want to recuse or not. That's what it boils down to. So you have to really be honest with yourself as a judge when you're reading these things if you can decide fairly because you're deciding whether you should recuse yourself, which to me is a crazy process. You would figure somebody else would decide that. So for this example, we um, submitted a, this is a 38-page affidavit. Um, and when th this, this individual who's a recusal expert is a heavyweight. Uh, this guy, he gives all his credentials. He was an attorney in many, in many courts. He is an attorney. He's been practicing law for 36 years. Um, he's been asked to be an expert witness and testify in trials. In December 2009, he de testified before the subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee on Judicial Disqualifications. So this guy was asked to testify in front of the House subcommittee about a judge being disqualified. So I, this guy is very uh, well equipped. He has taught professionally. Uh, he taught professional responsibility. This goes into all his, uh, basically like his resume. And the guy, it goes on and on. Um, he wrote treaties, updates for treaties. Wrote a book about it, the new book, Recusal, Just Qualification of Judges. You don't really get more well equipped as far as somebody judging whether somebody, whether a, a judge should be recused. And this, this gentleman was very equipped, and he put together this entire um, affidavit outlining why the judge should dismiss herself, recuse herself from the case. Big conflicts of interest. Now, he goes on, he gives all different points, and uh, when he's summing it up, he's explaining why a judge is expected to disqualify him or herself. He put herself in this case, it was a female judge, and it says, um, he, he's laying it out. In the Second Circuit, a judge is expected to disqualify herself if a reasonable person, knowing all the facts, will conclude that the court's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. And then he goes on, he gives a citation. It says, I am of the opinion that a reasonable person, if considering the totality of the circumstances, might question the ability of the judge to be impartial, and that is not a close call. So he determined that it's not even a close call. The judge should definitely be recuse themselves from the case. In this instance, one of the points he also cites is how the judge was formerly uh, had the role of prosecutor. Uh, with the matter that subsequently become comes before her in her judicial capacity, is it is improper for her to sit unless the defendant has waived his right to seek disqualification on this basis. And then he just goes on uh, again. Maybe another episode I'll cover this specific recusal, but I wanted to really just bring it up how the process is because people are just not informed on that. They'll say uh, they'll try to say the defense is incompetent. They should have did a recusal, and they don't realize when a recusal is submitted. It's not a guarantee. The judge decides if they can recuse themselves. And this is just the, the signed sworn affidavit. The gentleman's name was Richard Flam. 
again, he's a, he's top in the field as far as uh, as far as recusal matters. So I wanted to kind of just outline how that works, give people a little insight on the recusal process. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware, and a lot of times, even though they'll look to without understanding the case, I notice people will say, "Oh, they didn't have a good defense team. They didn't have a lawyer." You need to understand the case before you make those uh, assumptions and before you reach those conclusions. You need to see, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, doing your due diligence and understanding the case. See what motions were put in. Perhaps the defense did everything they could, but every motion they put in was denied and their hands were tied. So you need to factor that all in. What were they allowed to talk about? What weren't they allowed to talk about? How many times did they object? How many times did they ask for a mistrial? You really need to weigh all of that before you're able to gauge if somebody was competent, if they had a good defense team. You need to understand all that. People don't really grasp how the system truly works. They'll hear these things about reasonable doubt, and you got to be 100% sure, and they all sound great. I mean, it was written perfectly, the Constitution. These guys really knew what they were doing. <laughs> The uh, Founding Fathers, I believe, had the intentions of truly making this a fair system. However, it gets manipulated, things get bent, jurors don't uphold their their part in that responsibility, they don't understand the threshold for reasonable doubt, they don't weigh the evidence versus the actual charges, and they convict people sometimes based on reputation. So there's a lot of cracks in the system, and I, and I want to do my part to shine a spotlight on those cracks and educate um, the public. And I understand sometimes the material may be boring. I get it, and that's why I try to break it down and not be, not use all the legalese and uh, the legal terminology, because that's boring. I'm in it, and I find it boring sometimes. I like to break things down, common sense. What does it really mean? What's the meat of this? How do we understand it? Um, if it's something that could hurt the defense, how do we strategize to oppose it? How do we counteract it? So I try, to, I try to keep the topics as entertaining as possible. I know they may get boring, but it's important, folks. It's important for the public to understand these things. It's important to understand your rights. It's important to understand how the system is supposed to work, not how it is working, how it's designed to work. And we have to do our part to get it back to that, get it working the way it was designed. And that's why I come on here when I can. I try to appeal to the public and I try to talk about these things um, and that and th that's it I think for today's episode I just wanted to put that out I thought it was an important episode I think it's important to have it in the library people could revert to it defendants could uh, listen to it those who are interested in a case could uh, use it to help them and to guide them where to pull the information from if they want to learn about a case so I wanted to put that out there that's it for today until next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon.
Until then, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Justice Tech Pros. To email the show with questions and comments, it's podcast at justicetechpros.com. Till next time, this is Justice Tech Pros Podcast and Dominic Crea signing off.